Okay, all right. So, Mark chapter 2, and uh, look at verse 1. Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum. He sort of stand up. Where is Capernaum? What, what lake is he nearby? The Sea of Galilee. And that's called a sea because it's fairly large, but it's not like the Mediterranean Sea. But it's also called the Lake of Gennesaret. But it's up there in the north part of Israel. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. So everybody's telling, hey, he's in the house. Verse 2, and straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. Who's the them? Who knows? I thought it was just Jesus. Who was with Jesus, everybody? All the disciples. So this is, if somebody, if Jesus came to your house, he would have brought 12 men with him. <laughs> so it would quickly crowd out. But it says, many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them all. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. So here, here in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is still in the Capernaum area. He's ended up in Peter's house. How do you know it's Peter's house? Look back there in verse 29 of chapter 1. And forthwith, after Jesus had spoken in the, uh, the synagogue, verse 29, forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So he's going back and forth into this house that belongs to Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. Maybe it was a family home. Maybe it was their mom and dad's home. We don't know. Um, but they're in basically Peter's house. And there's great interest by the people in Jesus. And that's very important to remember. They weren't coming to meet Peter. They weren't coming to meet all these disciples. They weren't coming to see the crowd. They were interested in this name Jesus. Now, I want you to understand, this is an early house church concept. They had no special buildings where, where Jesus would be teaching. Whatever He taught in homes. He taught in fields. He taught wherever there was a crowd, and the crowd would gather wherever Jesus was, and that's church. Is church the building that you meet in? Now, in its shame, we point to a building and we say, the church or that church, but that's only a building, isn't it? So Jesus is meeting in Peter's house, and it's a house church. Take your Bible, go to Reve uh, sorry, Romans, Romans chapter 16. Hold your place there for a moment. Romans chapter 16. I'm looking for, where's the verse? Where's it? And in their house. There it is. Okay. So, verse 3, Paul's writing at the end of, of Romans chapter 16, and he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in there. All right. So, some people might imagine there's this little church building in their sitting room. Not at all. It was the people that met in their house. So Jesus, is, he's got this crowd that are gathering there, filling that house, and it was so full that people were crowding at the door. They were looking in the windows. It must have been a great sight. Hey, folks, let's keep church that way. Let's keep church where it's all about Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter where we meet because we're the church. We're the reason... Uh, we're, the, we're the people that worship 
Jesus. And that makes it church wherever we are. Next one. And what did Jesus do? He preached. And notice back there in Mark chapter 2, verse 2, and he says, and he preached the word unto them. What a unique phrase. Go to chapter 4 in verse 14. 414. The, the, the example that Jesus gives is a, is a parable, a parable of the sower and seed. And verse 14 says the sower. Notice he doesn't say, it complicates, it just says the sower soweth the word. Now, is it just any word? What is he sowing? God's word. So it's kind of cute. How many of you know what this is? What's his proper name? The Bible. Now, I'm going to say this. Bible is a Greek word, pa-biblios, the book. Isn't that cute? That's the book. Jesus spoke and preached the word. I've got all kinds of words, but he preached the word. Out of all the books in the world, this is the book, pa-biblios, or the Bible. That's what it means. Look at verse 15. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But they that have heard uh, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. Verse 16. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately received it with gladness. Over and over and over, uh, Mark doesn't say the word of God or God's word. He just calls it what? The word. That's cool. Now, Mark's like that. When Mark is writing, he's very terse. He just gets to the point. And so he says, Jesus preached the word. Uh, and then something marvelous happened. And that's what we're going to focus on here, chapter 2 and verse 3. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 3. And you're going to see something called, I call it, visible faith. Look at verse 3. All right, so it says, he preached the word unto them, verse 2 and verse 3, and they came unto him, bringing one sick with a palsy, which was born, carried by four. So four men bring a palsied man. Who knows what palsy is? You ever hear that phrase before? We usually call it cerebral palsy. Somebody with cerebral palsy cannot walk. They can't, usually, they can't feed themselves. They can't sit up. They are invalid. There's something that is not working in the brain. Their brain wants to move the legs, but there's a disconnect. Sometimes it happens when in the, in the birthing of, of the child, the child uh, was, de was deprived of oxygen. And so when they are born, they've lost the ability to move their arms, their legs. They just barely. Nita has an uncle who had cerebral palsy. Uncle Joe, right? Little Joe, he was called. Little Joe. Ah, okay. So... Uh, little Joe was big in the bed, but um, he could not feed himself. He couldn't sit up, couldn't bathe himself. He was more than crippled. He was invalid. So they bring a palsied man. And um, uh, it took how many men to carry him? Four. So he's not a little child. He's a man, okay? And they overcame all obstacles. As they come to the house where Peter lived, and Andrew, and uh, Peter's wife, and Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, the house must have had lots of family members all in there. When they get there, they can't get in. And what you see is you see a group of men who come this far. They've brought their friend who is crippled. They hear of Jesus. When they come, they go, we're not going to let this stop us. 
And he, somebody goes looking around and says, I found some stairs. <laughs> and up they get on the roof. I want you to think, look at verse 4 again. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, the press being the crown, they uncovered the roof where Jesus was. Now, do you think that that was a good idea or a bad idea? Depends on whether you're Peter or not. <laughs> if I uncovered your roof, you'd be furious at me. All right? But there, now, many of their roofs, they were clay roofs. We call them adobe houses or whatever. They had, um, uh, in the clay, crisscrossed, were, were fibers, uh, were, um, um, uh, what do you want to call it? But they were, there was a mesh to hold up all of that clay into a roof. In order to lift off the roof, they had to break it up. They actually broke the roof of Peter's house. Can you imagine Peter's wife? <laughs> Every time Jesus comes, something goes wrong. So, but I'm telling you, whatever obstacle was in their way, what was the first obstacle in their way? Somebody tell me. The crowd. What's another obstacle? The roof, okay? <laughs> Getting access to Jesus. There was another obstacle I wrote down. I said, the embarrassment. Think about these guys overcoming the fact that everybody's going to be watching what they do. All of a sudden, all the attention was on Jesus. Now it's on them. And you know, when you're trying to do the will of God, when you're trying to be a soul winner, when you are trying to do anything that is right, all eyes will be on you, believe me. And I mean, when, when I remember uh, I, was, I was working for the telephone company, it came Christmas, and they, they brought, they brought a, uh, a trolley full of wine bottles. They were handing it out for Christmas. Merry Christmas! And I said, no, thank you, I'm a Christian. You could have heard a pin drop. Because everybody else was kind of take two. You know? everybody, and here's one guy, me, saying, no, thank you, I'm a Christian. I don't drink. And all of a sudden, all eyes were on me. And you got to be willing to say, hello, hi. <laughs> and that's, they, they overcame the embarrassment that was going to be all eyes on them. And that's very important. These were four good friends who cared not about what people thought, but about their friend. I read this. There are two reasons why people divorce. One is because of money, and the second reason is because of health. What do I mean by health? You marry somebody, let's, let's uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wright, only her name is, first name is always. <clears throat> but uh, you get two people, and they marry each other, they're healthy, they can run, climb trees, they can drive, everything, and then one of them gets in a car accident, and they're laid up, maybe for the rest of their life. The odds are the other person will divorce. It just, it just is natural what happens in the world. It's not right, it's wrong, it's wicked, till death do you part. But it happens. But these four men, when they had a friend who was crippled, they didn't abandon him. That's a good friend, amen? That's a good friend. So they overcame all the obstacles. And then I want you to see in verse, uh, and I kind of I like this picture, because as this guy's being let down, I mean, he's trusting those guys to not drop him. <laughs> he's coming eight feet from the ceiling. He probably would hurt real bad if he did fall, amen? He trusts those, he, he likes his friends, okay? So he's coming down and Jesus waiting. Did Jesus know this was about to happen? Of course he did. So there's only one spot right in front of Jesus and they picked it. And they're dropping him right down in front of him. And um, Jesus saw their faith. Look at verse 5. 
When Jesus saw their works, what did it say? Now, everybody else, if I were looking at it, I'd say, look at how much effort they went to. Did you see what they did? Did you? But you know what Jesus saw? He saw their faith. It's not your works that will ever save you. God's looking to see, do you have faith? Do you see that thing? Let's keep going. Uh, it says, when he, Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, he said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, we humans will see all the effort and the struggle of these men, but Jesus saw their faith. This man's faith and these four men's faith was apparent. He wanted to be healed. He allowed himself to be taken from the home and brought to this crowd. He's heard that Jesus can heal. Now, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hold your place here. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Now, when you found that, just answer this question. What do you think that man and those four men wanted from Jesus? Sorry, Weston? They wanted healing. Fix my situation. Jesus, heal me. Chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, bless him, make him happy. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is God, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently not seek for things from God, but just seek Him. Jesus is going to teach us how important faith is. The only thing that impresses God is not our efforts. And that doesn't mean that you should just sit there in bed all day and do nothing. But all of your best efforts do not impress God. They don't please God. What pleases God? Your faith. So, I want you to see, everybody else sees this guy being brought in, and what costs Caught Jesus' eye, he saw their heart, and he saw faith. Uh, Mark 6, Mark chapter 6 and verse 5. He could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk. This is a different day at a different town, and he couldn't do much except lay his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled because of their what? He was amazed that they didn't believe on him. And so he went around about the villages teaching. So he went to a town. There was plenty of need, weren't there? But there was very little faith. Uh, go to um, Matthew. Go back to Matthew 8. Matthew 8 and verse 10. How visible is your faith to God? Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10. Now he, Jesus, is speaking to a centurion name. Uh, I forget, he doesn't have a name, sorry. This is, not, this is not Cornelius. But when he's talking to this centurion, the centurion says, Lord, I trust that by your word you can heal my servant. And Jesus said this in verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said, to them, to the Jews that followed, because this was a Gentile, he said, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great, what? Faith. No, not in Israel. This man's got faith in me. Now, uh, 
When we say faith, everybody claims to have faith. Would you agree? Everybody, I believe in God. Yeah, even the devils believe. So what kind of faith are we talking about? We call it trust. Every one of you sat in a chair, and you trusted the chair not to collapse on you. Right? I can have faith in the chair, but it does me no good till I sit in it. Amen? And I can, faith in, I can have faith in Jesus. I can have faith in God. I can have faith in the Bible. But it means nothing until I trust it. The Bible does not say, have faith in God with all your heart. It doesn't say that. What does the word say in Proverbs 3, 5? Trust in the Lord. I give the example all the time. I had a 24 or 25-year-old doctor remove my appendix. I did not trust him. <laughs> he was too young. But I had to because there was no other doctor on call that night. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning. And I had to sign a little paper saying I would not sue. <laughs> but this guy, I had to trust him with my life. Trust is a whole lot easier than believing. I, I would have told you, he's a doctor. He wears a smock. He's got the uh, stethoscope. He looks like a doctor. But I had to decide, am I going to trust him with my life? And so faith is when you fully believe, when you have the ability to trust him. Um, these men had a trust in the power of Jesus. That's why they went to so much effort. So now... Jesus now says some surprising words. In verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, he does not say, son, you are healed. Didn't say that. He surprises everybody by saying, your sins are forgiven you. Now everyone expected Jesus to heal the man. Did they already see Jesus heal other people? Yes or no? Of course they did. They watched him heal in the past chapters. They saw a man who was born with a, uh, uh, or he had a crippled arm. Jesus spoke, stretch forth your hand, and he did. Uh, there was another man who was demon-possessed. He's crying out with a, with a demon inside of him, and Jesus said, come out of him. And all of a sudden, boom, he's, he's free from that demonic uh, oppression. And they saw him heal, but now they go, hey, try this one. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. What a strange thing. I want you to notice, Jesus did not say, your sin is forgiven. What did he say? Your sins, all of them, plural. And by the way, it says there in verse 5, thy sins be forgiven thee, which in short words means it's a gift. Sin, your sins have been forgiven for you. How do most people think their sins are taken care of? By us. People go to church trying to balance out their life, you know. I'll say a few hundred prayers in my life. I'll do a few good things, you know. And my sins will be forgiven by me, by means of me. And Jesus says, no, your sins are forgiven for you. You see the difference? That little flip will send you to hell if you do not understand that it is only given to you as a gift. His sins were forgiven not by baptism. Did you know this man never was baptized by John the Baptist? Why? Because they couldn't get him into the water and get him out of the water. This man had never been baptized. He had been left at home, so when he came to Jesus, he had no John's baptism. There was no promise he ever could be baptized. He was just going to trust only in Jesus Christ. He was forgiven by Jesus. You know how you get forgiven? By Jesus Christ. You can cry out to him right now. If you're not born again, you can cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me. And if you don't get baptized, you're disobedient, but you're still going to heaven. Amen. 
Well, some people think that, well, I was baptized as a baby. Your baptism only got you wet. It didn't do anything for God. This man was forgiven by Jesus Christ and him alone. Go to Hebrews 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. And his sins were forgiven on the basis of Jesus' future death. Why was Jesus able to say to the man, your sins are forgiven? Because Jesus was going to the cross. And that death was going to pay for sins past, present, and future. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is how much remission? There is no remission without the shedding of the blood of the Messiah. So these are surprising words. They are shocked. Look in verse 6. There's some upsetting words to some people, chapter 2 and verse 6. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, reasoning in their hearts. Listen to what they said. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now the scribes evidently had seen this crowd gather around Peter's house. And so they're not curious, they're worried. Because the Romans always watched for any kind of, of uh, group that would try to get together and try to start another war with Rome. And so the scribes went to go see what's going on. Is this a political meeting or what else? And when they get there, they hear these very different words. And they heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven for you. And it freaked them out. It says, how can this be? For a man to be able to forgive sins was what? What, does, what do they call it? How could it be blasphemy for a man to forgive sins? Somebody raise your hand. Tell me. Yes. That man would be making himself God. By the way, Jesus was God. Amen? So they're like, how can he forgive? Only God can forgive sins. So their mind is racing. They're going through all of the things. How can this be? Matt? Yes, ma'am. Yes. So for 1,500 years now, Roman Catholic priests have been blaspheming God by claiming to be able to forgive and absolve sins when only God can and only Jesus can. I can't forgive and neither can you. Jesus can. So they would not, these men wouldn't have minded a miracle if they had been standing there and watching him heal the man. They would have said, mm -hmm, and walked on. That wouldn't have bothered them. But for Jesus to declare that a man was forgiven... It was impossible, and it was wrong. So Jesus gave some proving words. Look in verse 8. And immediately when Jesus perceived in the spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? And by the way, one of these days Jesus is going to show everybody in, in the judgment seat of Christ what you were thinking and what was going on in your heart because he knows what goes on in our heart. These scribes didn't say anything, but in unison, all of them in their hearts said, who is this man who thinks he can forgive sins like God? He thinks he's God. So Jesus says, why are you thinking that in your heart? What a revelation. What if, what if I came along and I said, Yuming, how dare you think that? <laughs> Yuming says, what? If I knew what you were thinking, that would freak you out, wouldn't it? But Jesus knows what we're thinking. That's scary. 
So here, Jesus says, why do you reason these things in your hearts? Verse 9, he then gives the proof. He says, whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise, take up thy bed and walk? Which one's easier? Huh? Which one's easier? Okay. Actually, no, they're both impossible. Neither one of them are easy. So when he says, which is easier? Because, listen, the Jews knew it took, us, it took death to pay for sin, right? The wage of sin is death. And for a man to come along and say, your sins are forgiven. How can you, how can you just forgive sins? That's impossible. Well, Jesus said, all right, well, which is more impossible? Healing a man who was born crippled with cerebral palsy? Healing him or forgiving him? They're both impossible. Then he goes on, look in verse um, 10. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to do the impossible, to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say to thee, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. So what's he doing? He's proving, he says, to prove that I can forgive sins, I will heal him. Both are impossible. You can't see the forgiveness of his sins, but you can see the miracle. So here's a question for you. Why did Jesus do miracles? To prove that, that he could do something visibly, physically, to prove he can do it spiritually. Because I can talk all day about economics and about the weather and about politics. But to talk about spiritual things, how do you know it's true? So Jesus says, to prove that I can forgive this man's sins, I will heal him and I'll do the impossible. And that's very important because I want to say this. Uh, the Messiah was, was expected to do what? What did they think the Messiah would look like and act like when he came? Talking about the Jews. He would come like a king on a white horse and, and with a sword, and he would rally and says, we've got power to, to, to um, uh, throw off the Roman Empire, power to rule. They expected a powerful ruler. Jesus came as a Joseph with one suit of clothes. And his power instead was on the spiritual, on forgiving sins. They thought that the Messiah would come with only the power over physical enemies. But our biggest enemy is what? Sin. So here comes Jesus, and he said, I want to prove that I came as Messiah to heal. Not your flesh and your problems, but your heart. So he's, he's blowing everything in reverse. He's actually trying to get everybody to realize Isaiah 53 talked about a suffering Messiah, and the Jews went, we don't want that. We want a sovereign king. Jesus said, you can't have a sovereign Messiah until you trust the suffering Messiah, Jesus on the cross. So, to prove that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had the power to forgive sins, Jesus turned to the guy and said, stand up, roll up your bed, walk home. Can you imagine that man sitting up, standing up? I mean, everybody is holding their breath. He's rolling up his bed. He puts it on his shoulder, and with the biggest grin on his face, he heads out the door, the people part, and he walks home. Can you imagine what it was like when he got home? Can you imagine the joy and the excitement? 
Jesus had just healed him. But what had Jesus also done? Had also forgiven him. He got two miracles. Those proving words. Look in verse 11 again. He says, I say unto thee, rise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine host. When was, when had he ever walked anywhere? Never. When had he ever been able to go anywhere he wanted? Never. For the first time in his life, he was free. Did you know when you get saved, you're just as free on the inside as that man is? You can walk anywhere you want. That's why you ought to walk right. Because you're free to walk in the right direction now. You don't, you're, you're, you're free. The Son therefore shall make you free. You are free indeed. And there ought to be joy because of that miracle. So the purpose of miracles was to prove what can't be seen by the use of what can be seen. Did anybody notice the key word that, that Mark uses? Immediately. Immediately. Most doctors will give you maybe a prescription that says, we'll give this about two weeks, we'll see how it does. You, uh, you get these healers, you know, and, and they talk about people being able to be healed and nothing ever changes. When Jesus healed somebody, right then, Lazarus, come forth! It didn't take two days for Lazarus to get out of the tomb. Would have taken impossible. He comes right out. Everything that is a true miracle happens instantly. All were amazed. Back there in chapter 2, verse 12. And immediately he arose. There's our word. Sorry, I hadn't gotten to it yet. Immediately he arose, took up that bed, went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. <laughs> We'd say gobsmacked. Stunned. What's another superlative? What would you say if you saw something like that? Not shocking, but what else? What's another? Hmm? Astonished. I mean, just awed. They're saying, we've never seen it like this. Never seen anything like this. Guess who else was surprised? His disciples, Jesus' disciples. I mean, when Jesus heals, it's just got to... Why do you think men left their careers to be with Jesus? Because nobody ever spake like Jesus. Nobody ever did anything like Jesus. Why would, why would you and I spend so much time trying to be like him? Because that's who he is. He is amazing. We're not just reading a religious book. We're not just going to a religious organization. We're not just going through the motions and doing traditions and ceremonies. No, we're following Jesus. It's so different, isn't it? They were amazed. They had never seen the simplicity of forgiveness. What did that man have to do to be forgiven? Somebody tell me. Just have faith. Just look unto Jesus. And do you think the man knew what to ask for? This is why prayer doesn't save somebody. Just the desire. When, when, the, when the publican cried out, God have mercy on me, Jesus said, he went home justified, forgiven. The man didn't create a, a fancy prayer. The Pharisee did. Remember the Pharisee? I thank thee, Father. I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other men, especially like this publican. I tithe. I fast twice a week. I, 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 I. Sounds like the devil. A prepared prayer. Fancy prayer. Lots of words of prayer mean nothing. What does Jesus look for? Do you believe? Do you believe with all your heart? Somebody, I've watched people fumble through words and they go, well, what do I say? How do I say to God? 
well, what do you think you should say? <laughs> just something. You just got to mean it with all your heart. Cry out to him with all your heart to save you. The simplicity of forgiveness is incredible. And the power of Jesus Christ. He can do anything. He can heal, he can raise the dead, and he can forgive sins. Now, from that day on, those people never left Jesus' side. Jesus, from this day on, had crowds of people that never see. Jesus' focus on, on sin, Jesus' focus on the heart, caught people's attention. And that ought to be still today. So, let's finish up with some, some thoughts. Four great truths for, that we've learned from this thing. There's probably ten, but I'll give you four of them real quick. Number one, people love preaching. Jesus didn't come promising to heal. He came and he preached the word, and people couldn't get enough of it. If you ever have the privilege of teaching in children's church, if you ever have the privilege of standing behind this pulpit and teaching or preaching from the Bible, you know what I want to hear? The Word. I want to hear the Word of God. I want to hear what Jesus would say if He were here. Because that's what attracted me. I don't care if you got fancy jokes, if you can tell bad jokes like Eric. I don't care what you can do and how you can impress in the eloquence of your speech. I want to hear about Jesus. People love real preaching. They love to know, thus saith the Lord. Secondly, people want to hear mainly about Jesus. Make much of Jesus. I love learning about Moses, Elijah, Daniel, but I love most learning about Jesus. Amen? Uh, people need to hear about Jesus. Is that not true? These people were blessed because Jesus is right there, but there are countless numbers of people all around us who gave up on church years ago, and they know this much, this little about Jesus, they need to know Jesus. Don't let obstacles turn away your confidence in Christ. You know what those four men believed? That Jesus could help their friend. And they were determined, and whatever the will of God is for your life, whoever God brings you to to witness to, I don't care how much of an atheist they are, I don't care what kind of Muslim imam they are, Give them the gospel and have confidence in Christ, not in yourself. Amen. Four important questions I want you to try to answer. Kind of, they're all obvious. But number one, can anybody see your faith? Especially, does God see it? <clears throat> you see, when you, when you come to church, well, okay, that may be showing some faith. You put the priorities, say, I should be home doing paying bills or whatever, but I put God first. People ought to go, that person's living by faith. But God's wanting to know, I'm, uh, uh, I need to determine that I want God to see my faith. Secondly, are you willing to risk everything and trust God's way of doing things at all times? There, are, there were probably doctors who looked at that man and says, there's no hope. There's nothing we can do to help him. But they says, we'll take him to Jesus and whatever Jesus wants to do. There's a man there, we haven't gotten to him yet, but there's a man who is blind. And he comes to Jesus and Jesus meets him and says, and he, he says, what do you want? And the blind man says, that I can see. And Jesus said, do you believe I can do this? The man says, yes. And so Jesus spit into the dirt. There was, they didn't have faucets and taps and things. They needed, he needed some clay. <laughs> this was a long time ago, okay? He spit into the ground and he made with the spittle, it says, some clay. And he put it on his eyes. You say, what good is that? That man has to trust whatever Jesus wanted to do. And he said, now, I want you to walk over to the water. There's a, there's a pool there. And wash, and you'll come back seeing. 
What did the man have to do? Trust that whatever Jesus wanted to do. If Jesus wanted to put spittle and clay in his eyes, if Jesus, whatever Jesus wanted to do, that's nah, not crazy. But that's confidence. You know, if Jesus wants to, to, to send Eric and me to Afghanistan, we keep talking about it. It might just happen. We got to trust that he knows what he's doing because we wouldn't know what we're doing. And if he does lead us, I'm just going to trust him his ways at all times, even when things are not going well. Third question, what is the main attraction in your life? What was the main attraction in Peter's house? Was it was his big 62-inch LCD TV? What was the main attraction in his home? It was Jesus. What a crazy thought. And if somebody met you and saw you, would they see Jesus? And lastly, what's your level of determination to do the will of God? I think Peter, James, John, all the disciples said, we are, we're going places with this guy. Father, right now, we have um, so many things in our favor. We have health, we've got doctors, we have um, so many things taken care of for us. But when troubles come, we always look at you trying to fix the trouble instead of the heart. Lord, there are people that we know that sure could use some help. You probably have some bad situations, marriage problems, financial problems, I don't know, any number of a hundred things. But I know what you want to fix. This scripture teaches us that your main focus is not fixing people's problems. You're not a genie. You're a savior. And of all the things that are wrong in this world, the worst is sin. And the biggest need is salvation. Forgiveness of sins, plural. And it doesn't take anything to get saved. There's nothing we can do. That man could do nothing to be healed. And that man could do nothing to be forgiven. He just needed to be in your presence. He just needed to trust that you could because that's what you do. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a great lesson. Lord, I remember the day I got saved 39 years ago. I didn't understand it all. I just knew you wanted. In the corner of the Bible, you wanted me just to trust you, ask you. You had a gift called eternal life. It was available to anyone, but I finally believed that it was also available for me. So I accepted it as a gift. It changed my life. You took the burden of sin away and you gave me a new life. You gave me a purpose, gave me every good gift from that moment on. Lord, if there's anybody in this room who's not saved, doesn't know what it means to be saved, never been born again, like Jesus said you must be. Father, I pray they'd stay around, they'd ask how does this work? What do I do? Because there's nothing you do. It's who you believe. It's who you trust, who you cry out to. Not to Peter, James, John, not to Mary, Joseph, nobody. You cry out to Jesus Christ. And he will save you. Lord, in this room, there are plenty of us who need to stir some people's faith up. Get them to, to, uh, to quit asking God for all the things and to believe in him for the spiritual things that matter most. Give us a heart of compassion for our world around us. Make us soul winners, please. In Jesus' name.